So today we are going to be learning a sicha, which is uh, about the theme of the first parsha of the third book of the Torah. This past Shabbos was a very busy Shabbos. Um, we, we, re- we read two parshas, Bayakal and Pikude, which speaks about how the Jewish people actually built the tabernacle, the Mishkan. It was all set up. And at the very end of the parsha, after everything was all set up, the Torah tells us that the, the presence of God, God's glory, filled the entire Mishkan. It filled the tabernacle to the point Moses was not able to enter. Until God called out to Moses and told him to enter, and that's when he communicated to him the laws of sacrifices. And that begins in this week's parsha, which is the beginning of the third book, which is called Vayikra, which means to call. In English, we call it Leviticus, because the entire book is mainly laws that are relevant to the holy temple, which was, which was staffed by uh, people from the tribe of Levi. Even the Kohanim, the priests, they came from the tribe of Levi as well. Uh, obviously, the Levites were from the tribe of Levi. So um, this is where we're starting. If until now we had a lot of stories, a lot of drama, this coming book has almost no drama. Very, very little drama. In about a few weeks in Shemini, there was a little tiny bit. But other than that, um, it's all laws and mostly laws that are connected with the Holy Temple, uh, which actually might uh, cause someone to pause for a moment and realize that most of the laws that we're going to be reading in the third book of the Torah are not relevant in a practical sense today in the absence of a Holy Temple. In fact, this week's parasha, I don't think any of the laws in this week's parasha have any relevance in a practical sense uh, in the absence of a Holy Temple. The entire, the entire parasha is about uh, korbanot, about sacrifices. The next parasha as well. Uh, in the third parasha, we have the laws of kosher. Okay, so that's relevant. You know, we still have to keep kosher today, and there's, there's kosher food and non-kosher food, kosher meat and non-kosher meat, birds and fish, etc. But uh, most of the laws in this book are, are, are really just uh, beyond our capacity which can cause one to wonder why would it be purposeful in even reading this book, going through these laws? What's the idea? So uh, the, the sikha we will learn today in this class will, will shed light on a very important uh, concept, which at first glance would seem only relevant to the presence of a holy temple, but the truth is it does inform the very core of our relationship with God. So, Let's go straight into it on page two, source one. Um, so the beginning of this week's parsha, God called to Moses, speaking to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and tell them the following. When one of you brings an offering to God, the sacrifice must be taken from the cattle, sheep, or goats. There are other kosher animals, by the way. Deer is a kosher animal but you're not allowed to bring a deer as a sacrifice. It can only be from cattle, sheep, or goats. If the sacrifice is a burnt offering taken from the cattle, it must be an unblemished male. One must bring it of his own free will to the entrance of the tent of meeting before God. And then there are several other um, the details to the sacrifice and the process of how to prepare it for um, for, for being brought onto the altar, and the priest shall thus burn the entire animal on the altar as a completely burnt offering to God, an appeasing fragrance. 
Okay, so this is the first, this is the first um, style of sacrifices that are offered in the temple. We're going to see throughout the class that there are mainly four types of sacrifices from animals that were brought in the Holy Temple. Um, all of them were offered on the altar, but there were differences between them. The first type uh, is called karban oilo, which is the burnt offering that everything, the entire animal is going to be burnt on the altar. No one is going to eat from its meat. No one is going to benefit from any of its meat or bones or anything like that. The only thing that people benefit from is from the hide of the animal. But otherwise, everything else is burnt on the altar. Now, this uh, sacrifice was a, a sacrifice that was brought. In other words, there are two ways you could bring a carbon oil, a burnt offering. One is a private individual bringing that offering. And another is um, the community bringing that offering. So be, before we go even further, I just want to put a few things out there. There are many different types of sacrifices. And there are three types. In other words, from all of the different types that are out there, there are three ways one would bring a sacrifice. One way is an individual does so just because. He wants to, right? As he says, um, when one of you brings an offering to God, someone decided one day he wants to bring a sacrifice and he can come to the Holy Temple and bring a sacrifice. There are certain types of sacrifices one can bring on his own volition. Then there are other sacrifices that an individual is obligated to bring, which we'll learn soon what these sacrifices are. So there are recreational sacrifices, so to speak, and then there are obligational sacrifices. In the realm of private sacrifices, you could either bring a sacrifice because you want to or because you have to. Then there is community sacrifices. Community sacrifices are not optional. These are an obligation on the community of, the, of, of Israel to, to bring these sacrifices in the Holy Temple. Every day, there was a carbon oil, a burnt offering that was offered on the, on the altar on behalf of the entire nation in the morning and in the afternoon. That's called the carbon tamid, the constant sacrifice. Where did they, uh, where did they pay for these sacrifices? How, how was it a communal sacrifice? Every year, um, during the month of Adar, there was a tax that every Jew was obligated to pay. It was a half shekel. No one was allowed to give more than a half shekel. No one was allowed to give less than a half shekel. And they would collect all these half shekels and bring it to the Holy Temple. And Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the first day of Nisan, which is today, the first day of Nisan was the beginning of the new temple fiscal year. All sacrifices that were brought on behalf of the, on behalf of the entire community of Israel from Rosh Chodesh Nisan had to be purchased from the new, uh, the new pot, the new collection of half shekels. So uh, the, the law of the carbon tamid, that obligational sacrifice that was brought on behalf of the entire community of Israel in the morning and in the, in the afternoon is actually in next week's parasha. Let's see source number two. Instruct the Israelites and tell them, be careful to offer my fire offering food sacrifice to me in its proper time as my appeasing fragrance. 
Tell them that the fire offering that they must offer to God shall consist of two yearling sheep without blemish, each day as a regular daily burnt offering. Offer one sheep in the morning and the second sheep in the evening. This was tamid, constant, every single day, even on Shabbos. And just to, to, just to, for you to realize what that means, on Shabbos, we are not allowed to slaughter, we're not allowed to kill any living thing. You're not allowed to kill a bug, swap a fly. You're not allowed to uh, do any of that stuff. You're not allowed to slaughter in order to eat. Yet, in the Holy Temple, on Shabbos, they were obligated to slaughter the sheep in the morning and the evening. And on Shabbos, by the way, there were extra sacrifices that were brought in honor of Shabbos. So bringing a sacrifice in the Holy Temple was a very important mitzvah. It was a mitzvah that superseded the observance of Shabbos. Um, but specifically sacrifices that were communal sacrifices, sacrifices that were an obligation on the entire community of Israel. Which, so on Shabbos, that would include the morning sacrifice, afternoon sacrifice, and then the Musaf sacrifice, which was several animals that were offered in between those two sacrifices. Um, they were all slaughtered and burnt on the altar on the day of Shabbos as well. This even happened on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. The service in the Holy Temple continued, and they would slaughter animals and offer them on the altar, etc. Source number three introduces us to a different type of sacrifice. Till now, we've learned about the carbon oila, which means that the sacrifice, the entire animal, was burnt entirely on the altar. If one sacrifice, I'm on page three, source three, if one sacrifice is a peace offering, carbon shlamim, shlamim from the term shalom, Shlamim, a peace offering, and it is from the cattle. He may offer either an unblemished male or an unblemished female before God. What was unique about the peace offering? Some parts were burnt on the altar. Some parts were eaten by the priests. And other parts were eaten by the owner of the sacrifice. A private individual that offered a karban shlamim, a peace offering in the temple. So the reason why it was called a peace offering is because everyone got a portion. God got a portion, the priest got a portion, and the owner, the one offering the sacrifice, also got a portion of that meat that needed to be eaten uh, in a certain context, in a certain time, by certain people, etc. So that's karban shlamim. And the concept of karban shlamim could be um, an, individual an individual obligation. Most of the time, when it came to Karban Shlomim, it was optional. Um, we'll see soon, there's actually some that uh, they were an obligation. Um, the community of Israel, the, 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 the entire community, the entire nation would also offer certain sacrifices that were in the category of Shlamim as well. And the source number four, this is probably one of the most famous types of sacrifices. God spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the Israelites and tell them if an individual commits an inadvertent sin by violating certain prohibitory commandments of God, they should offer a sacrifice. And typically, most of the sins, if someone did them inadvertently, which means that there was no witnesses, there was no warning of it, etc., um, most of the time, one is able to achieve atonement through bringing a sacrifice to the Holy Temple. Now, this was not optional. If someone had 
uh, violated a certain sin, they had an obligation to achieve atonement by offering a sacrifice. This sacrifice was not completely burned on the altar, but some of the parts were burned on the altar and the rest were eaten by the koanim, by the priests, but the owner of the sacrifice did not eat any of this sacrifice. Uh, when it comes to sin offerings, one of them was called chatat, the other one was called asham. Both of them are, generally speaking, uh, sacrifices that come as a result or, or for the purpose of achieving atonement for, uh, for a sin. Now, one of the biggest challenges that, um, that some uh, religions try to mount against the Jewish people today is, you guys aren't the real Jews. Why are you not the real Jews? Because in order to be Jewish, you have to be able to achieve atonement. The only way to achieve atonement is by offering a sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. You can't do it now, so obviously you guys are fakers. You guys are frauds. Now, such an argument can only come from complete lack of knowledge in Judaism. A complete lack of knowledge in Judaism. It's just basically they took a King James Bible and read it in English and came to some silly conclusions on their own. And we obviously understand that that's not the way Judaism works. You don't just take a Bible that you can't read in its original and come to conclusions of what it means. Obviously, there is a tradition and there's a whole system of how, of how Judaism works. And Judaism does not hinge on a holy temple to be relevant. In fact, the Jewish people have been here for 3,333 years. We've had a temple for less than half of that time. We've had a tabernacle and a temple for a combined, let's say, 850 plus 410, if someone could do the math quickly, less than 1,500 years, the Jewish people had a temple in the land of Israel. And we're strong. We're still here. We're still observing the Torah and the mitzvahs, and we're sticking to it. The Jewish people have sacrificed themselves in order to keep the Torah throughout all these generations, even though there was no holy temple. So obviously the argument that, oh, the fact that you can't bring a sacrifice, you can't achieve atonement, means that you're a fraud. So that's obviously a silly and fake argument, totally. But let's get to the, to the bottom of this. How is it possible that uh, an overwhelming majority of Torah law is uh, basically irrelevant due to circumstances? How could we be Jewish? How could we continue to uh, have a relationship with God if we don't have the option of bringing a sacrifice in the Holy Temple. How does this work? And the answer is that while it is true that when there is no Holy Temple, one is not allowed to bring sacrifices from animals. It doesn't work that way, and it doesn't accomplish anything. However, there are certain things that we can do in lieu of sacrifices um, uh, in order to accomplish the same. Obviously, it's not the same as a sacrifice, but in the absence of a Holy Temple, these ideas can be accomplished in other ways as well. So let's go to source five. How do we achieve sacrifices today? So one of the sacrifices, as we mentioned, source three was called the Shlamim sacrifice, the peace offering. One of the most famous peace offerings is a karban toido, a thanksgiving offering. Now there were four circumstances that would warrant a thanksgiving offering. If someone had traveled through the desert and survived that journey, they had an obligation to bring this Thanksgiving offering. If someone went on a, a sea voyage and survived, they would have to bring this Thanksgiving offering. If someone was deathly ill, was very, very ill, and regained their strength, they were healed, 
regain their health, they had an obligation to bring this offering. And finally, someone who was in prison and, uh, and, and was released from prison, achieved freedom, was granted freedom, they also had an obligation to bring this offering. That's the carbon toito, which was a peace offering together with other uh, breads, etc. We're not going to get into the details of that. However, um, Jewish law today tells us that when something amazing happens to us, when we, when we um, experience a miracle and we have what to give thanks to God for, you know, for, for all, the, all the wonderful things he does for us, we should offer a Thanksgiving offering, but not by slaughtering an animal and burning it on an altar, but by making a party. Source 5. Halachic authorities in recent generations have written that when someone experiences a miracle, he should recite Torah's passage about the Thanksgiving offering. So even just reading the words about the sacrifice, that itself is, it, it achieves a lot. Of, uh, a lot. It is also customary to hold a feast with friends, relatives, Torah scholars, and the poor, to tell over the miracle and to thank God for his kindness. As the verse states, I thank God with all my heart in the presence of the upright congregation. So we can't bring a Thanksgiving offering, but we could read about it, and we can have a party and tell over the story in the presence of other Jews, and that also achieves a very special Thanksgiving to God. Source number six. Throughout the day when you are engaged in business, this comes from the Alter Rebbe, who wrote a Shulchan Aruch, a Code of Jewish Law. Throughout the day when you are engaged in business, you can be an abode for God by giving charity from the proceeds of your labor. Now there's another common misconception, and that is, when are you in a relationship with God? When do you have a divine experience? When you're in the synagogue or on Shabbos. Special times, holy times. But when I'm at work, when I'm at the gym, when I'm doing things that seem to have no connection to, to my relationship with God, how can I be an abode for God? So the author says that throughout the day you could be an abode for God by giving charity for the proceeds of your labor. But then you'll say, one second, if I make $100, how much of that am I going to give to charity? The most that I'm obligated to give is, is a fifth. 20%, let's say. So I have $100. We give $20 to charity. So $20 is divine. $20 became an abode for God. What about the other $80? Right? I made a million dollars. So I gave $200,000 to charity. But I have $800,000 left. How does that become divine? So he explains, even if you donate only one-fifth of your earnings, it elevates all the other four parts as well. It's not just the $20,000 or the $200,000 that become holy and special and elevated. The rest also. As our sages famously taught, charity is equivalent to offering all the sacrifices. In sacrifices too, all living creatures were elevated to God through the offering of one animal and so on. In the morning when we offered one sheep, in the altar, all of the animal kingdom was elevated. That one sheep was a representation. God is not expecting us to give us everything, that we should give him everything. He wants us to have most of it. He says, but acknowledge that it's truly mine. Acknowledge that I am the one that gave it to you. And therefore, I give you $100, 10%, 20%, that goes to charity. And the rest, you're going to keep. But because you gave, what you were obligated to give from the money that you earned, 
all of your earnings become elevated. Just like, just like with regard to sacrifices, we didn't have to offer all of the animals in the entire world in order to elevate them, in order to make them holy and more connected to the divine. By offering one animal properly, we elevated the entire animal kingdom. So thus far, there are so far we know of two ways how you can achieve the what was achieved through sacrifices in the holy temple. You can achieve it today through other ways. So if someone wants to give thanksgiving to God, he can read the chapters in the Torah that speak about the thanksgiving offering, or throw a party and thank God by telling the story of the miracle to all of your friends and relatives. Um, another way is through giving charity. Charity is. Um, is equivalent to offering all the sacrifices and it doesn't mean that like giving all of your money to charity giving just what you are obligated to give to charity the 10 percent, the 20 percent to charity that elevates all of the money in your possession just like sacrifices would elevate the entire animal kingdom by offering just one animal two animals whatever was needed on a daily basis and finally the third way we can achieve what sacrifices achieve during the temple times is through prayer now, this is what our main uh, conversation today is going to be about. Source number seven. The men of the great assembly enacted the three daily prayers of the Abida, which were established by our forefathers. Two were obli obligatory. The morning and afternoon prayers corresponding with the two Tamid offerings. So in the Holy Temple, they would offer a communal sacrifice in the morning. So... Um, so equivalent to that, our sages established the morning prayer of Shachris. And then you have the Tamid in the late afternoon. So equivalent to that, we have the, the prayer of Mincha. These two prayers are obligatory, just like those sacrifices were obligatory. The evening service was optional and represented the burning of the leftover sacrifices on the altar all night long. Let me explain. When someone offered a sacrifice in the Holy Temple, there was a certain uh, time frame in which certain parts of the process needed to happen. In order to offer a sacrifice in the Temple, it needed to be slaughtered during the daytime. Also, the, uh, the blood that came out of the, the animal's neck or throat after it was slaughtered was collected in a basin, and they would sprinkle the blood on the altar. That sprinkling of the blood on the altar was, was key. If that didn't happen, the sacrifice was illegitimate. And most importantly, if that did not happen within a specific time frame during the day, the sacrifice was illegitimate. The way it worked was in the morning, the very first sacrifice that was offered was the carbon tamid, the communal sacrifice in the morning. No sacrifices were offered before then. And then in the late afternoon, once they brought the afternoon sacrifice in the, in, you know, for the community, the carbon tamid of the afternoon, you were not allowed to offer any sacrifices after that. But that only means that you were not allowed to slaughter and sprinkle the blood of sacrifices after the afternoon sacrifice was offered. However, if there was a lot of meat that still needed to be burned on the altar, they would bring that meat onto the altar throughout the entire night. And in fact, the temple was a very busy place. People were bringing sacrifices around the, I mean, the entire day they were bringing sacrifices. And it was very common for there to be a backlog. You know, there's just, there's only so many priests that are working there and only so quickly, uh, there's only so much time that they have and how quickly they can prepare a sacrifice to be offered on the altar itself. And so therefore, it was very common that throughout the night, 
there were chunks of meat that were bring, being brought onto the altar um, to be consumed by the heavenly fire that was on the altar. So since the nighttime was also a, bit, a very busy time in the Holy Temple, a busy time in connection with sacrifices, so our sages established the Mairif prayer, the evening prayer, which was representative of offering the meat on the altar during the evening. Now, since initially that's not an obligation, one is not obligated to offer meat uh, during the nighttime in the Holy Temple. It was only just something that basically happened. So originally the, evenings, the evening prayer uh, was, was, uh, was optional. However, in our day, the evening service has been accepted by the entire Jewish people as an obligatory service. So when we come to shul, or even if you don't come to shul, when you're at home, and someone open, and if you open up a sitter, you open up a prayer book, and you see that there are three daily sacrifices, three daily prayers of shachris, mincha, and of the morning, afternoon, and evening sacrifices, um, prayers, these prayers were established to represent the sacrifices that were brought in the Holy Temple. So already we see a link between the sacrifices in the temple and our daily prayers. And this is what the Rebbe is going to be speaking about in this Sikha. Okay. Yeah, the Sikha is from 1984. All right, so on page five, our sages said, prayers were established in the place of sacrifices. In the absence of the Holy Temple, when we cannot and must not offer sacrifices, the sages enacted prayer services to replace the offerings of the temple. The morning prayers represent the tamid offering of the morning, and the afternoon prayers represent the tamid of the afternoon. Accordingly, there must be a correlation between the meaning of sacrifices and the meaning of prayer. What was the purpose of sacrifices? So usually you can find the idea of anything in its actual word, in its name. You know, many times when you're trying, you have a word in English, so what does that word mean? So just, just look at the word. The word basically says what it means. So the same thing is with regard to Hebrew. And most of the time in Hebrew, that's the way it works. You have a word that means something. Carbon means sacrifice. But if you look at the word carbon more closely, you'll find an entirely new meaning. Sacrifice connotes the idea, there's something that's mine, I'm giving it up. Right? That's what sacrifice means. Be willing to sacrifice of yourself. Be willing to give up time, to give up money, to give up pleasure, to give up whatever it may be. That's how we usually refer to the concept that when we say sacrifice, that's what we mean. So if we would use that translation of the word sacrifice with regard to the animals that were offered in the Holy Temple on a daily basis, it would seem that you have people that are coming and say, you know, really, I want to keep this cow for myself. I'll do God a favor and I'm going to give him the cow. You know what happens when you have such an attitude? It brings to actually a very silly question. God needs my cow. I'm sacrificing. I could have my cow and I can enjoy the meat and I can enjoy the milk and I can enjoy, I, I can use the cow to plow a field. I can do something with it. I'm going to sacrifice my cow and give it to God. And God needs your cow. What does he need your cow? Right? So obviously sacrifice, at least in the context of the sacrifices in the Holy Temple cannot mean this typical idea of I'm going to give something up. So what does it really mean? The Hebrew word for sacrifice is korban, comes from the word kiruv, which means closeness. 
Karov. How do you become close to God? The offering draws the person closer to God. Um, when uh, in, the, in the opening words of, of the laws of sacrifices, if we go, if we go all the way to um, on page two, source one. So the, it starts off, it says, um, speak to the Israelites and tell them the following. When one of you brings an offering to God, Adam ki yakriv mikem. If you're going to read the words, you can read it in a way, Adam ki yakriv, a person that wants to come close to me. You want to come close to me? Let me tell you how that works. In general, when you want to come close to a person, how do you come close to them? On your own terms or on their terms? Usually on their terms. Let's say, uh, you know, you're, you're, trying, you're trying to befriend someone. And you very much like to eat uh, macaroni and noodle, uh, you know, macaroni and cheese. Mac and cheese, that's your favorite uh, meal. So would you invite them to your home and serve mac and cheese? Or would you find out, what do you like? What is your favorite food? And if they say their favorite food is salmon, even if I can't, I don't like salmon, but if I want to befriend them, I would invite them to my home and I would prepare salmon because I know that's what they like. That's what they want. If that person wants to come close to me, yeah, I'll tell them, make, make, make mac and cheese. You know, I don't like salmon. I like mac and cheese. So here's what God said. You, you want to come close to me? Let me tell you, I have certain things that I like. Why I like them is a separate story. That's beyond the scope of this, of this, of this class. But essentially, God is telling us, Kiyakri, if you want to come close to me, let me tell you how you get close to me. I just commanded you to build a tabernacle, a holy temple. It's going to be my home. My presence is going to be present there. I'm going to dwell in that home. You want to come close to me in my home? You have to bring a gift. You have to bring me food. This is the food that I like. I like sacrifices. I like cows, sheep. Goats, I don't like deer. Don't bring a deer. And by the way, if you want to bring an Ola sacrifice, you want to bring in an offering that's completely burnt, it's got to be a male cow. Can't be a female cow. It just doesn't work. The peace offering, oh, the peace offering, you want to bring that? That's either male or female. That's fine. But if someone comes and says, I want to bring an Ola offering and it's got to be a female, sorry, it just doesn't work. That's just, God doesn't want that. If someone brings a deer to the holy temple and he says, I want to offer this deer as a sacrifice, you know what they tell him? It's kosher, it's wonderful. Go outside, slaughter the deer, and make a party and praise God during your party. But that's not going to bring you closer to God in the holy temple. Birds. There were two birds that were allowed to be brought as sacrifices, a dove and a pigeon. There was different ages. A dove had to be under a year, a pigeon had to be over a year. You brought a dove that was more than a year old, no good. A pigeon that was younger than a year, no good. Take him away. You want to come close to me? Come close to me on my terms. And this is what I like. I like sacrifices brought specifically on this altar. So it says, oh, I want to bring a sacrifice to God in my backyard. Sorry, buddy. I don't like it. By the way, there was a time period where people were able to bring sacrifices in their backyards. The Jewish people came into the land of Israel, and they only had a Mishkan. They didn't have a holy temple in Jerusalem. They were able to bring sacrifices in their backyards, but only certain types of sacrifices, not all. 
Once King Solomon built the Holy Temple and the, te and, and the altar was erected in, in the Holy Temple proper in Jerusalem, from then on, forever, you're not allowed to bring a sacrifice outside of the Holy Temple. God doesn't like it. You're not going to come close to me through just killing animals wherever you want, sprinkling its blood wherever you want. If you take an animal in your backyard, you slaughter it, sprinkle its blood somewhere, and burn it up, you know what God says? You wasted your time. You didn't just waste your time, you wasted a life of a cow. You wasted the meat. What are you doing? I don't need that. I don't care for that. You're just destroying the world. Ah, but if it's a legitimate holy temple, a legitimate altar, and you bring a cow, and you slaughter it, and you sprinkle its blood on this altar the proper way, and you offer it in the proper way, you didn't waste your time. In fact, you achieved an unbelievable closeness with God. Why this yeah and this no? Uh, it, it's on his terms. It could be explained. There's a lot to learn. We could be here for another six months, uh, you know, round the clock, uh, trying to go through all of the details. And there's, there's so much. There's a tremendous amount of, uh, of scholarship uh, that, that goes into the idea of the sacrifices. But the essential core idea of a sacrifice is kiruv, to come close to God. And by definition, when you want to come close to God, you come close to God on His terms. So if that's the idea of the karbon, and prayer was established as a representation, or in place of the karbonot, in place of the sacrifices that we cannot offer today, because we don't have a temple. So continuing on page 5 in the middle of the last paragraph, this is also the idea of prayer. Although we ask God to provide us with our needs, such as wisdom, health, and sustenance. So you'll say, what's the idea of prayer? To ask God for things, to come and whine, to come and say, please give me this, please give me that. But it's more than that. The true purpose of prayer is to develop a closer relationship with God than we had a day earlier. Right? One of the big questions I always come up, why do we have to pray every day? Why do we have to pray three times a day? You know, if you're working for a company and you want to get a raise, what's the best way to do it? The best way to get a raise in the company is if in the morning you make sure to see the boss and say, good morning, boss. And after you come back from lunch, you're going to say, hey, good afternoon, boss. How are you doing? You know, I was just in the coffee shop. I bought an extra coffee. Here, why don't you take it? In the evening, when everyone leaves, say, have a good night, boss. You say, come on. Do you really have to do that every day, three times a day? Yeah. Yeah. That's the way you maintain and grow a relationship. Right? The famous story that there was a couple that was fighting. They came to the rabbi. And the woman tells the rabbi, I want to get a divorce. So the rabbi says, why? He says, he doesn't love me. He says, how do you know he doesn't love you? He says, he never tells me that he loves me. So he turns to the man and he says, do you love your wife? He says, of course I love her. So she says, so why did you never tell me that you love me? He says, what do you mean? The night of our wedding, I said, I love you. And I'll tell you if anything changes. And that's it. For the next 40, 50 years, I didn't have to say anything. Nothing changed. He said, I love you once, and that's it. But everyone here knows. It doesn't work that way. You have to say, I love you, not just once a day. The more times you do it, the better. What's the whole idea of prayer? Prayer is carbon. God doesn't need to eat my side. He doesn't need the meat of the cow. That, that's not his sustenance. You know what his sustenance is? You know what his excitement is? The fact that we are offering that cow. If God really needs cow meat in order to survive, he has millions of angels that would 
that would be ready to go and grab cows and offer them to God, right? But God doesn't need angels to offer him cows. God needs his people. And when his people offer him a cow, when his people offer him a sheep, and the way that he likes it, that develops the relationship. And so prayer is the same thing. Our sages, in their divine wisdom and in the divine intuition, they were able to craft prayers that were able to represent the sacrifices. They were able to craft a, a language that through us saying this language, through us thinking about this language, but most importantly by saying the words in the proper way, and it can be said in any language, but as long as we're sticking to the text, as long as we're saying it properly at the proper times, we are achieving a closeness with God. And to achieve a closeness with God, it's not enough to say, I love you, God, at my bar or bat mitzvah, and I'll let you know if anything changes. I'll come back on Yom Kippur. I'll tell you if anything changed of our, uh, of our relationship. No. God wants to hear, I love you from the very beginning of our life, every single day, three times a day during prayer. The Tamid offering, which corresponds with the daily prayers, was a burnt offering. The entire animal was burned on the altar. This teaches us that true closeness to God is only possible when we approach Him not for personal gain, but for the sake of cleaving to Him. Just as in the burnt offering, where the owners didn't receive a portion for themselves and didn't even have the benefit of giving a portion to the priests. Instead, the entire sacrifice was offered to God. By way of example, if you invest in a relationship for certain benefits, whether money, honor, and so on, it's not a genuine relationship. You're concerned only with your own welfare, and moreover, you are exploiting the other person for your own goals. A true bond is only possible when it is not about your personal benefit, but about a genuine desire to be close to the individual. For example, a parent's relationship with a child isn't about earning the child's respect or ensuring his support during the parent's old age. In the original, the Rebbe says, you're not just investing so that someone should take care of you when you're 119. That, that's not why you say, I love you to a child or take care of them or feed them or send them to school, etc. The connection is innate. It's a connection of love. The same is true of our spiritual worship that is modeled after the Tamid offering. Our connection to God must be like a burnt offering. It's not about the benefit we will receive from observing Torah and its commandments. Rather, it is an expression of our innate desire to cleave to God. True, through prayer we channel God's blessings for all our needs. Nonetheless, we approach the prayer itself as an opportunity to become closer to God, to be like a burnt offering, holy for God. This is actually a very important point. You know, as we mentioned earlier, there were different types of sacrifices. There were sacrifices that achieved atonement. There were sacrifices that were considered peace offerings. We also got a part in the meat. We also were able to celebrate with it. Now, these were all sacrifices that had different purposes. However, prayer is modeled after the burnt offering. The reason we pray is not to achieve, achieve atonement. The reason to pray is not that we can walk away with a, you know, with, with, a, with a goodie bag. I came to pray, I gained something as a result. You know, sometimes I hear people complaining and saying, 
Why should I pray every day? I pray and pray and pray and nothing changes anyway. So the response to that is, what's the connection? What's the connection between prayer and your gain? True, in prayer, we ask for things. We ask for health, we ask for money, we ask for peace. We ask for a lot of things. That's the text of prayer. And in fact, that's also one of the core ideas of prayer, that when you need something, you pray to God. Conversely, someone says, I have no reason to pray. I have everything I need. Again, what's the connection? That's not the point of prayer. The point of prayer is that it represents the Olah sacrifice, the burnt offering that was completely burnt on the altar. You didn't gain anything from it. You didn't achieve atonement. You didn't have any meat to eat. You didn't give it to a Kohen, and therefore the Kohen is going to be indebted to you for offering him that meat. Nothing to gain. It's about... It's about a, uh, a true and genuine relationship with God. And that's what prayer is all about. Approaching God without any ulterior motives. Let's go to page 8. So, so when do we need to pray? When, you know, once we've framed the idea of prayer as uh, developing a relationship with God, one can argue that uh, I have to be in the right mode. I have to be in the right mode to develop that relationship with God. Let's say I'm not in the right mode for many different circumstances. Do I still have the obligation to pray? Is it still a thing? Torah states regarding the tummy. So let's go back to, so if prayer is modeled after the sacrifices, and not just any sacrifice, it's modeled after the tummy sacrifice that was offered in the morning and in the evening, which was a burnt offering. So the Torah states regarding the Tamid, offer one sheep in the morning and a second sheep in the evening. It starts getting dark. It wasn't brought at night. It was brought, you know, closer to evening as it's starting to get dark. You might assume that being a burnt offering, serving God in the most altruistic form, is only possible in the morning when you are in a state of illumination, when you are spiritually content, living according to Torah and its commandments, and when you are materially content, free of concerns, and definitely free of hardship. At that stage, you will be able to make the decision to cleave to God, to be like a burnt offering. However, during the evening, when you feel that your situation is not as good as it should be, right, it's darkness, and that may indeed be the case, how could you pray to God as a burnt offering, ignoring your personal benefit for the sake of cleaving to God? Your first responsibility is to provide for yourself, your wife, and children. Only then will you have the freedom to worship God in an altruistic fashion. If, if I need money now, how can I come to God and say, God, I'm not here for the money. I'm here to be close to you. That, that's, what are you doing? That's not fair. It's not fair to yourself, not fair to your family. You have an obligation. How can you come to God and say, I just want you. I don't need money. This is a lesson from these verses. The Tamid offering must be offered both in the morning and at night. Offer one sheep in the morning and the second sheep in the evening. The word Tamid means constant. This must be our constant pursuit, no matter our situation. Whether in times of morning and illumination or times of evening and darkness. Devotion to God is not something that, that should depend on circumstances. If I have the time, if I have the headspace, 
if I have the peace of mind, now I can be devoted to God. No. What's the, 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 the expectation of prayer is that we should develop the ability to be devoted to God in all circumstances, in all situations, even when it's dark outside. Um, obviously, you know, it's easier to, to look at, um, to, 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 uh, to take inspiration from great tzaddikim, uh, from the righteous that uh, really, you know, are an example of how to do such a thing, even though one could argue and say, oh, how can I compare myself to them? But at least knowing that there were human beings that were capable of such an attitude, that gives us a very, um, that it's kind of like a, it leads our path, it illuminates our path in how to serve God in such a way as well. There's a story told about Reb Zusha. Reb Zusha, who was a, a contemporary of the Alter Rebbe, who was a student of the Magad of Mizrich from the early Hasidic masters. He was very, very poor. He was a very poor man. And he had children, and, and you know his daughters were getting older. They needed to get married, and uh, his wife said, "You know, you're, you're going to the Rebbe. The Rebbe is a miracle worker. He helps so many people. I want you to ask the Rebbe for a blessing, for money. You don't have to be rich. You should have enough money to feed the children and to marry off our daughters." Now, Reb Zusha did not want to do that. Why? He says, "When I go to the Rebbe, I don't ask for petty things like money. When I go to the Rebbe, I'm, I'm looking for, to, to achieve." greater spiritual heights, uh, greater understanding in the secrets of the Torah, in my service to God, etc. I'm not going to waste the Rebbe's time with money issues. Um, so that was initially his, uh, his uh, concept, you know, that you know, he would never ask the Rebbe for this, but his wife kept on nudging him, you know, the word nudge, she kept on pressing him for it. And then he said, you know, really, it's not fair. You know, my wife is taking care of the kids and taking care of the family, and, the, you know, she's, she's genuinely worried. What's she asking for? She's not asking for riches. She just needs money to take care of the house. You know what? So out of my, uh, you know, I care for my wife, so I'll ask the Rebbe for it. But the problem is when he was in the Rebbe's presence, he was just so overwhelmed by the inspiration that he would just forget. He would forget about, about the money issues. He would forget that he was poor. He would forget that there were issues at home. Finally, at one point, his wife told him, if you don't come back with the Rebbe's blessing, you're not allowed in the house. I'm not going to let you back. Okay? <laughs> he has a threat. Anyway, he goes to the Rebbe. And this time again, he was in the Rebbe's presence and just he was so overwhelmed and he started to only ask the Rebbe about spiritual questions that he had. And as he was about to leave, the Rebbe stopped and he said, is there anything else that you need to ask me for? And then he remembered that his wife threatened that he's not going to be able to go home unless he brings, uh, you know, brings money back. So he, but he was still he was embarrassed to talk about money to the Rebbe. So the Rebbe, you know, helped him along he says perhaps there are issues at home so he says yeah he says perhaps you, you have daughters that need to get married your wife really wants you to come back with money he says yeah yeah anyway so so the rabbit took out a bag filled with coins and he gave it to him he said here take it this is for what this is this is what you need and there was a whole continuation to the story and that it's, it's not relevant but the point is that here you had a jew who his his devotion to god was altruistic he always wanted to grow in his appreciation for Judaism, for Torah, for his service to God. And it was impossible for any type of physical issues to enter his mind uh, while he was focused on his spiritual service to God. And he was doing so even though he really needed to have money, he needed to have blessing, etc. But the interesting thing is that if you look at the prayers, as we mentioned earlier, if you look at the Amida prayer, which is the main prayer, um, of the prayer service, it's all about asking God for things. 
for wisdom, for health, for sustenance, for peace. We're asking him for stuff. So how does that kind of, uh, how does that jive with the idea that prayer represents the carbon tamid, the constant sacrifice, which was a burnt offering, which was completely given over to God? It's a good question. Um, and, and the Rebbe speaks about this in several other contexts. Um, and I don't, I don't want to get into this too deeply, but essentially what the Rebbe explains is the following. You see, God created us in this physical world not to be angels. He didn't create us that we should fast all day. He didn't create us that we should survive on nothing. God created us as physical beings. And he wants us to live in a physical world and do physical mitzvahs. Right? Comes Pesach to eat matzah, get rid of the chametz, comes Rosh Hashanah to hear the shaifer, to take the money that we have and give a portion of it to charity. You can't do it if you're an ascetic. You can't do it if you have nothing. So the truth of the matter is that when we pray to God and we're asking for wisdom, for health, for sustenance, what we're truly asking God is, please grant us all of these things that we need in order to be the best Jews that we can be in order to be your servants. We want to serve you altruistically. We want to have a relationship with you. But we can't live if we don't have what to eat. We can't survive if we don't have money. But why do we want to eat? We want to eat in order to serve you. Why do we want to have food? In order that on Pesach we can have matzah. In order that on Shabbos we can have challah and wine and we can have a Shabbos meal. In order that when someone comes into our home hungry, we can provide them a meal and do the mitzvah of tzedakah, the mitzvah of achnasat or achim, of welcoming guests. Everything that we need, everything that we want, it's in order to serve you better. And so this is the core idea of sacrifices. It's really not sacrifices. It's carbon. Carbon from the word kiruv, to come close. And... It, it, to represent that today, when we don't have a holy temple, we have prayer. But it's not prayer, it's tefillah. The Hebrew word tefillah is etymologically linked to a word which means connection. Hatayfel klicheres. So tefillah and korban are both two different ways of saying connection or closeness. English is terrible. Translation loses everything. When you translate carbon into sacrifice, it sounds silly. When you translate tefillah into prayer, it also sounds silly. But in order, to, in order to represent the fact that our ancestors would slaughter animals, sprinkle their blood, and burn them up, therefore we're going to go and say, please God, give me food. What's the connection? What's the connection between some ancient, uh, 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 some ancient custom of burning animals on an altar in Jerusalem to me standing here in El Paso in front of God and saying, please give me food, please give me peace, please give me sustenance. What's the connection here? And you're right. In translation, there's no connection. But if you go to the root, if you go to the essence, if you go to the original, we have carbon, which means closeness. We have tefillah, which means connection. Now everything falls into place. It wasn't about taking animals and slaughtering them and burning them up. It's not about asking God for food. The animals were about us coming closer to God. And tefillah, prayer, when we pray three times a day, that's our way of saying to God, I love you, in the way that he wants to hear it, in the, in the, with the consistency 
that he wants to hear it. Because our relationship to God needs to be nurtured, strengthened, and kept up. Uh, it needs maintenance. And we have to be on top of that maintenance. And thankfully, we've been given the tools for that. One of the tools that we need today is the prayer book. If you have the prayer book and follow it through, you'll be maintaining that relationship in the best way possible. And, uh, and with that, we will conclude our class for today. Are there any questions? Very well done. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I, Thanks. A lot I didn't know. I have a question, Rabbi Levy. Yes. Uh, okay. It is my understanding that we Jews do not hunt for sport. Okay? Uh, I don't know if this is law or whatever. We only hunt to feed ourselves. Right? Right. Okay. When Moshiach comes... And the Beit HaMikdash is rebuilt. What is the, the prevalent idea? What is the, what the Rebbe has said about it? Are we going back to sacrifices? Of course. A sacrifice is not, is not, a, waste, is not a waste of an animal. It is. Some of it is, is completely burned. To God. Yeah, but why? What's the need of to burn an animal? That's a separate question. One second, fine. No problem. That, that's a legitimate question. That's a fine question that you have. But the, in other words, but you, you started off with the, the premise that hunting is not allowed, right? Mm -hmm. The reason why we don't do hunting is because if you kill an animal with a bullet or with an arrow, whatever it is, you're not even able to eat it, right? So you, that, that's a real waste of an animal. There's no... There's no mitzvah to kill that animal. But when God gave us the mitzvah of sacrifices, God said, the way you get close to me is by taking this sheep, bringing it to the holy temple, and slaughtering it, and burning it on the altar. It's a mitzvah, just like it's a mitzvah to eat matzah on Pesach. And we don't suggest that eating matzah, that's a way of wasting flour. I mean, I'm eating it, I'm digesting it. <laughs> Um, right? So, so far, that's a mitzvah. Uh, we say, you know, there's, it's a mitzvah to have meat on Shabbos, to celebrate Shabbos, right? The same God that allowed us to slaughter animals for us to eat food, that's, and, 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 does, and doesn't consider it a waste of life. On the contrary, this is a way that this cow is now elevated. It's, it's a whole, it's a whole a discussion. In the same fashion, God says that I want you to bring sacrifices in the Holy Temple. There's a very important um, message in sacrifices. But uh, the idea is that just like it's a mitzvah to eat matzah, a mitzvah to eat a shofar, just like we're, it's a mitzvah to slaughter an animal in order to eat it, so too it's a mitzvah to bring a sacrifice in the Holy Temple. And it, it's not a waste at all. On the contrary, this is one of the best things that could be done to the animal. Well, I have an issue with that. That's something that if you could refer me to some of the rabbi, of the rabbis, sikhas, that maybe I can be more enlightened, but I do have problem with that, Rabbi Levi, and you know how direct I am. Oh, well, thank you for being direct. Uh, that is a very worthy conversation. I can send you uh, links to either text from the rabbi explaining what the purpose of a sacrifice is. Um, and uh, yeah, absolutely. I'll be happy to send you uh, more of that. But essentially, what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to communicate is that um, 
you know, you, you could ask the same question about why are we allowed to eat meat in the first place? What, why well, that, was, it, that had to do with Noah. I mean, that, right? So why, was Noah, why was Noah given license to kill animals in order to eat them? In other words, the moral question... I'm sorry? After the Mabul, yeah. before there was time for food to be grown, I, that's my belief. That, I mean, that's what I know. That no, God that's allowed how the Torah says. The Torah didn't say because there's no food, therefore you're allowed to kill in order to eat. He said from now on, you're allowed to kill from in order to eat. From now on. Right. That's it. There's nothing. In other words, it wasn't, it wasn't because he didn't have what to eat, therefore he's allowed to. You know, beforehand, God says you're not allowed to kill in order to eat. And he says now you are allowed to kill in order to eat. Now there's the moral question of why are we allowed to kill animals. That, that's a separate question. And that, that applies not only to sacrifice, that applies also to the fact that we're allowed to kill in order to eat. Yeah, so, you're right. There are people that have issues with that also. No problem. But that's not necessarily a Jewish approach, right? Right. In other right. words, that idea of having issue with the license to kill in order to eat, that doesn't come from a... From, from a in other words, the Torah, as Jews, we take our cue from the Torah. We take our values and our morals and our ethics from the Torah. Why? Because we know that morals and ethics are not, are not up to us to craft. You know, to, because when, when we are the ones deciding on things, we can get into big trouble. Uh, so therefore, we, we take our cue from God. God tells us what is moral, what is right, what is ethical. Um, so if God says that it's ethical to kill in order to eat, so fine. So I, I have no problem with that. Um, and, and perhaps the same thing should apply if God says, you know, the, the entire, the entire parasha, God is saying, bring a sacrifice and this is how you should bring it. What should, what should be the difference between 3000 years ago and today? The only difference is that then we had a temple today. We don't have a temple, but the minute that we have a temple, of course, in fact, in the prayers, we say the, in, in the prayers, the Musaf prayer of the holidays, we say something to the, to the, to the point of, uh, please bring back your holy temple in order that we should be able to go back to how we are supposed to be doing things. Now, as we know that even though today we have prayer as representation of sacrifices, it's not the real McCoy. It's not the real thing. It's not the real deal. Uh, in the, in the, in the, you'll notice in the Haggadah, in one of the prayers, we say, you know, we're waiting for the time when the temple will be rebuilt and we'll be able to offer the Pesach sacrifice. Yeah. The Seder yeah. today, the Seder today is incomplete. The Seder today is, uh, you know, just matzah. It's missing the, the Pesach sacrifice. Well, but in the Pesach sacrifice, we're allowed to eat certain parts of the animal. But certain right? parts are burnt. Isn't that a waste? Well, yes, but it's not. Well, uh, no, anyhow, it's not. No, but I, I, have to, I have to jump in. It's not a waste. That's the thing. That's the thing. When God says you should bring some things onto the altar, the altar is not a waste basket. The altar is not a garbage can. On the contrary, the altar is the holiest place where a piece of meat can be. So technically speaking, if you would ask the animals, what would you rather? You'd rather me kill you in order that I should eat it and put you in my tummy? Or I kill you that you should, you should be on the altar? You know what they, the animal would say? Where's the altar? I want to be there. Okay. Thank you so much, Rabbi. You're welcome. Uh, Thank you for being direct. I like those types of questions. Well, you know, it's, it's, there's certain yeah. things I feel strong, so. Yeah, very good. Go very ahead. good. Yes, Rochelle. 
You need to unmute. Oh. Okay, yes. Um, I have several questions, but I will write them to you. But the one I'm going to ask you now is, in Source 5, the Thanksgiving prayer, is that the Hagomel? That's one of, yeah, that, that's one of the ways of, of doing Thanksgiving, yes. Oh, so that's what I was going to ask. Not every Thanksgiving prayer is the Hakomel, right? Well, there, there are different ways of expressing Thanksgiving to God. Now, one of the things he says over here is make up, throw a party, <laughs> right? Throw a party and, yes. and talk about the miracle. Another one is the Hagomel prayer, which interestingly enough is, is recited only in connection with these four things that would happen. In other words, there were four reasons why a person was obligated to bring the Thanksgiving sacrifice. Uh, a sea voyage, going through a desert, coming out of prison, and, and getting healthier. Um, so today, if someone has one of these experiences, they would recite the Hagom. One of the most common usages of the Hagom prayer is if you, uh, do a, uh, if you, um, if you fly over the ocean. Uh, over the Atlantic, over the Pacific, or other, any ocean. If you fly over the ocean, uh, when you land, uh, it's customary to say the Hagomel prayer uh, by the next Torah reading. Um, uh, people that are very ill and they become completely healthy, they do that as well. People that are in prison, they come out of prison, they do that as well. Um, the way, what's interesting is that a desert journey is not typically... Um, Today, we're, we, we don't do that. In other words, if you drive from here to Dallas and you go through the desert, you don't say the Hagdemo prayer. It's a, good, it's, a, it's, a, it's a legitimate question. Why not? But uh, that's just the way it is. Okay. And also, well, it makes sense because uh, landscape changes over time. That's, it's true. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. And I have several follow-ups, so I'll, I'll write you the follow-ups. Thank you. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Thank you all for being here. And uh, we'll see you soon. Tuesday, we're having the, the model Seder.